0: amen anybody glad to be in church today yes if you weren't that is a good enough reason to be glad to be in church today i was thinking about psalm 14 1, just as we were singing that where it says the fool says and it says in his heart that there is no god and yet the juxtaposition there is that those outside of The faith would look at us and say, we are the fool for believing there is a God. And so the kind of hinge point for that is what we're talking about these next few weeks. We've rounded the corner from John 18 and we're stepping into John 19. And so we've, we've officially rounded the bend on his life and his ministry. And now we stare Directly into his death and resurrection. And as we start that, I think it's important for all of us to just recognize that we, each and every one of us, probably bring some baggage to that conversation. For some of us, it's baggage that needs some unpacking, right? For others of us, it's been the focal point of our faith. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he said these words, he said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Drop to verse 22, it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God stronger than men. Can I get an amen in church? But let's keep in mind that we're coming from last week's text in which Jesus' declaration is that His kingdom is not of this world. He has something altogether better in mind for His creation. As Tim Mackey reminds us, His kingdom is for this world, but it is not of this world. Does that make sense? It's for the world. It's just not of the world. And that's important. It's because this upside down kingdom is then epitomized by a cross. This kingdom of victory that you just sang about all morning is epitomized by a death on a cruel torture device in the first century Roman world. But not just by that, amen. It was three days later on that first Easter that Jesus rose to life changing everything. And what makes it so upside down is that Jesus conquers evil and gains victory through an act of self-giving love. And this is where the difference lies. His version of conquering is not this world's version of Conquering. More on that next week. Although today, Christians all around the world, millions and millions and millions of them, and honestly for a couple thousand years, celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was not that way in A.D. 33. When Jesus went to the cross in those early days of that first century, He was not a hero. In fact, as N.T. Wright points out, when Jesus died on the cross, nobody thought he was a hero. Not even his followers, right? He was leading this movement along with a ragamuffin group of followers. And that movement was now dead. Nothing had changed. Caesar was still on his throne. And death, as usual in Rome, had had its last word. That's what it felt like on Friday. Until at 6 p.m. on that Friday when it no longer felt like that, right? When the veil was torn and movement began in the bowels of the earth. We're going to talk about that next week and unpack that. But whether you believe in Jesus or not, it's impossible to look at the life of Jesus and say it was not the most significant life, the most significant to events. To ever happen in the history of the world. For those first disciples though. Listen to this. They believed. Because they saw. That this event. In this event. The one true God. Had actually put into. And dramatically and suddenly put put into. Operation his plan to rescue the world. They saw it as the day the revolution began. But mind you, his kingdom was not of this world. So the revolution that they had in mind is certainly different from the revolutions that we see enacted in our day. Because the first sign of that revolution was resurrection. Right? My my hope is that as you, these next few weeks, consider the death and resurrection of Jesus... That they would be some become so connected for you that you would never think about the cross by itself. You see, those of us who are in fundamental Christianity for a long time, we can end up zeroing so much in on justification by faith enacted in the cross that we forget that this beautiful resurrection of Jesus is what leads to life, right? It's why when we baptize people, we take the words of Scripture and say, buried with Him in baptism, and then raised to walk in newness of life. It is the resurrection that actually solidifies and brings forth the beauty of the cross, because otherwise the cross is quite gruesome. Prior to all of that critical backdrop, though, for what we're studying these next few weeks, Jesus was on trial. He was on trial before Pilate, and it's incredibly important for those of us who have been religious for any length of time certainly in our secular moment right now, with all that's going on in the world, with all that's going on in our own country, with elections in the future, it's critically important for every single one of us to marinate, to meditate ourselves into this text. There are some things leading up to the resurrection of Jesus that are critically important for any one of us that follow Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, whether you're in the room or watching online, this is such an important fact for you to think through as you think about what those of us who follow Jesus are like and ought to be like, because there's some frauds in the world. I don't know if you knew that. But Jesus would stand on trial before both religious leaders and secular leaders. And it is important for us to see and gather what it is that's happening because what we see here is another seed of the kingdom of God, right? Jesus said His kingdom would be like a mustard seed, which you couldn't see for a while. That it would go into the earth and die, but that it would rise and grow. And that's exactly what happened from the moment that He was murdered, put into a grave, and then rose to life, that movement called the church began. And we literally sit here today because of it. So super, super important. But John here records for all of us, all of his readers, a cardinal truth and an observation about his kingdom. And I want to show it to you today in John chapter 19. So why don't you stand with me, get the blood flowing. We're going to read God's word. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but I, of course, encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read it. In John chapter 19, this is the word of the Lord through John. The Bible says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. If you don't or aren't familiar with that, that is a handle that has cords of leather coming off it that they would attach strips of glass and bone and metal, whatever could do damage without actually killing somebody. So Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is the second time Pilate has brought Jesus before all the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders and said he hasn't actually done anything wrong. The first one was back in chapter 18, verse 38. said, I find no guilt in him. You come forward to this verse, chapter 4, I find no guilt in him. But verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. This is reminiscent of Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, where it's foreshadowed that this man would come. And the phrase, behold the man, is stated in Zechariah 6. And so, not unsurprisingly, the story is unfolding exactly as the prophets of old had said it would. Behold the man, verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for, here's the third time, I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate would have known there that they could not do that. That's why they had brought him to the Romans, because they needed the Romans to do their dirty work. The Jews, in verse 7, answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. It was blasphemy to them. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Isn't that fascinating? He heard the name of Jesus and it stirred in his soul something that no other name can stir. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him like a baller. That's my translation. It's not actually in the Greek. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate's just building the case for believing in Jesus here. Just as it goes, he's he's now seeking ways to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your King. They cried out, Away with Him! Away with Him! Crucify Him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. You can be seated. Stark reality to watch the seen unfold in which those who were admittedly secular would slowly side with Jesus while those who claimed to know God would slowly step away from Jesus. Because as the trial goes on, you can see that Pilate quickly realizes that Jesus was not actually the radical, dangerous, revolutionary against Rome that he was being accused of being. In fact, the political charge against Jesus fades quickly into the background as the Jews do not even try to persuade him otherwise. As Raymond Brown suggests, and I believe he's correct, the Jewish leaders realize that they will not be winning Pilate over. Three times in a row he says that Jesus is innocent. So they resort to blackmailing Pilate, which causes him to act against his clear, better judgment. As he's seeking to find a way to release Jesus, he's suddenly caught between this rock and a hard place where the Jews have basically pulled the trump card and said, nobody who opposes Caesar is your friend. And so he has a decision to make. He can release an innocent man or he can put an innocent man to death and save his job. Pilate moves from dealing with these Jewish leaders and followers as humble plaintiffs to adversaries. He quickly realizes that they had the power to destroy his life. He tries strategy upon strategy but fails and is forced to acquiesce to their demands. But listen... I don't think Pilate's the star of this chapter at all. I don't think Pilate's the star of this chapter at all. I would actually say, in this particular sequence of events, it is actually God's people. Better yet, the leaders of God's people, egged on by God's people, that steal this show in the worst of ways. And is a cautionary tale for each one of us As we stand here in 21st century United States of America. Making our own decisions about who will be our king. Who will be our Lord. Who will we surrender to. Who will we follow to. When it becomes apparent that it is no longer welcome. In their persistence to have Jesus executed. They show a shocking. And I choose the word shocking strategically. It is a shocking Shocking loyalty to the emperor of Rome. For several chapters, John has been reminding us that there is truth. That God would send the spirit of truth. That there is a standard by which all things have to fall under. He's been saying that over and over. Jesus himself said, I am the way, singular, the truth, singular, and the Life And no one can come to the Father except through me. It is both inclusive in which God is not willing that anyone should perish, he says, but that all should come to repentance. But it is exclusive in the way that there is only one path to the top of that mountain. It is not as we've been sold a mountain with all kinds of camps at the bottom that eventually lead to the top. That is not what Jesus says at all. But everybody's Welcome. We see in this climactic scene that there is literally no length that the world will not go to to suppress the truth. And in that shocking moment, the Jewish people, listen, renounce their claim as God's people in the declaration that they have no king but Caesar. Think about that. They they are in one moment before their king Renouncing the Abrahamic covenant, rejecting it, made 4,000 years earlier. 4,000 years before that, they were declared, God chose them and made them his people. And told Abraham, I will bless this nation through you. And in fact, I'll bless every nation of the world through your lineage, which would be Jesus. And they desired to send King Jesus and his otherworldly kingdom to die. This was 33 AD, rejecting 4,000 years of history. Isn't it interesting that for another 2,000 years, by 70 AD, there'd be no more temple and no more Israel. That can't be lost on any of us. For 4,000 years, God's promise upheld. They reject it in 33 AD. By 70 AD, they have no temple and they have no country. And it was not, listen to me, till almost 2,000 years later in 1948 that Israel became a nation again. So I was listening to one person talk this week. Literally for the first time in 2,000 years, the church and Israel... We're coexisting on the planet at the same time. And so it brings context to what's happening over there right now. That all the way back to Genesis 17, I think, where, where uh, Ishmael is born and the Arab people come and we don't have time to get into all that, but it just gives you context to what's happening. For thousands of years... Listen, I'll just say it this way. Be careful what you wish for seems to fall short of the severe consequences that happen. And yet, for God, a day is but a thousand years and a thousand years but a day. But it does give us some things to process. That who we declare to be our king really matters. It really, really matters. It gives context to the declaration that we make every Sunday about Jesus, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. matters. It's not just words, it's not just lip service, it matters. So doesn't it seem ironic that this fatal renunciation of the Messiah then takes place at noon on Passover's Eve? Think about the significance of what is happening here. This would have been the very hour in which the priests in the temple would have begun to slaughter what is known as the paschal lambs. The lambs that would be slaughtered and their blood sprinkled for the forgiveness of the sins of the people were being slaughtered literally at the time where Pilate hands Jesus, the final sacrificial lamb, over to God's own people to be crucified. At their demand, by the blood of the final Passover lamb, King Jesus, he would mark them as his own. And yet, here they are, and they know no king but Rome's. Wow. Listen, how hollow their Haggadah praises would ring that Passover night as they judged their own selves. By condemning to die the one who the Father sent into the world, not to judge or condemn the world, but to save the world. John chapter 3. Listen, the beginning of John's gospel begins with John the baptizer's declaration. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That prophecy now fulfilled as Jesus' trial comes to an end and He is delivered to crucifixion to pour forth the blood that will cleanse all from sin. Truly as John sees it here, God has planned this hour. Next week we'll dive into the the particulars of the theological significance of the crucifixion and what is accomplished by it. But for today... The question ringing in my ears, and hopefully yours for each of us, is this. And I want to put it on the screen because it matters. This question. Who is your king? Who is your king? Because here we have religious leaders looking for the Messiah for hundreds, thousands, four thousand years. And he stands before them and they declare publicly, we have no king but Caesar. Notice that they didn't even just say, we don't think you're the Messiah. No, no, no. They went so far as to show their hand, didn't they? No, no. We have no king but Caesar. Listen, if I have to draw the line for us over to our own moment, I don't think I do. Listen, The kingdom of God has zero wiggle room for nationalism. The kingdom of God has zero room for Christian nationalism. The kingdom of God has zero room for atheism. The kingdom of God has no room for those of us who practice practical atheism, where we declare with our mouth one thing and we live a different thing. The kingdom of God has Zero wiggle room for any other theological or religious system. There is only one way. Let me say it to you this way, friends. We have, and this will be on the screen too, so I want you to process this. We have no king but Jesus. There is no king but Jesus. The Old Testament said the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority if it hadn't been granted to you from above. We have no king but Jesus. But here's what's awesome. When I stand here and I say that to you, it's going to stir something in you. But let's address exactly what it does stir in us. What I'm hoping you don't see is the dude on the white horse with... This flaming sword. (laughs) It's not what he's trying to say. This makes way, not for war, but for the Prince of Peace. This makes way, not for capitalism, but for shalom. Human flourishing. For the Kingdom of God breaking into the earth as it is in heaven, through the love of His Son, through us. God's people. That is the thing we want to give our lives to. That is the picture of kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven that we are called to. It it, it is none of the things that our world has conjured up for us to believe in. No, no, no. It's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4. I have come to set the captives free. I have come to bring sight to the blind. I have come to be a ransom for many. Jesus is, in fact, setting up a different kind of kingdom. But it is epitomized at the cross. And so we, we say all of that so that we can approach the communion table in proper fashion today. Because what we are after is we love because He first loved us. When He went to the cross, we sang it. And we're going to sing it again in a minute. I don't know what they had planned, but that's what we're going to sing. Kevin rolling his eyes on the inside because he's too nice to do it to me on the outside. (laughs) Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. It's not just a song. It's a creed. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And next week we'll dive into the significance of the particulars of that. But I just want you to sit with today as we partake of his body and blood. Right? First Corinthians 10. As we participate in his body. As we participate in his blood. As a community of people. One church. I just want you to sit with that question. Who is your king? And and not just by word, but by lifestyle. But by daily choice. What would your life declare is the king is the lord of your life? And I don't say that to you to make you feel guilty. It's just simply reality. Psalm 14.1 to bring us full circle. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Jesus has offered a way. He's made a way. If you are not following Jesus today, can I just invite you to the greatest thing ever? <laughs> to surrender your life and will and desires and dreams to Him. The Bible says if you lay down your life, you'll find it. So if you have been searching for the thing that will make your life what you've always hoped it will be, enter Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He is offering to you, just as He has for thousands of years, to bless you, just like He did Abraham 6,000 years ago. He had here, Here's what's crazy. He had you in mind. 6,000 years ago when he looked at Abraham and said, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you because Jesus would come. And there's nothing that gets me more excited than to think about someone crossing from death to life. Next week, we're going to baptize another beautiful child who's going to declare that he wants to follow Jesus. Incredible. So listen, if today's the day for you to surrender to Jesus, we can to baptize you next week. It's going to be great, okay? Because there is no other name given among men by which you can be saved. You're not going to find it at work. You're not going to find it in money. You're not going to find it in your friends. You're not going to find it in other religions. You're only going to find what you're looking for in Jesus. Amen? I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have the band come. We're going to take communion together today. So I ask Pastor Jerome and Pastor Tim if they'll come up and just grab these baskets, and as Kevin and the band just start to play behind us and give us our the mood for the moment. I'm just going to ask that Pastor Tim and Pastor Jerome just begin to walk through the crowd. I think one of the things that I love about the imagery of that, and I realize you don't get to stand up here and see it happen, but it's fun for me. So thank you. To watch the body of Jesus go to His people. There's something significant in that. So you guys can, can go ahead. But as it's coming to you, I just want to invite you, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, to examine your life. If you're not following Jesus today, I would encourage you to just not take... You can take a thing so you're not embarrassed, but I would just encourage you to refrain from taking the elements... We think it's a really big deal for those that follow Jesus because we believe that Jesus Christ gave his life for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. That he did, in fact, pay it all. And then he rose to life in victory. As you're considering that, and I would encourage you to just pray to the Lord right now as you stand there. the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 10 there's a warning it says therefore my beloved flee idolatry truly for those religious leaders standing before Pilate there was an idolatry problem they were worshipping themselves but Paul says I think I speak to sensible people judge for yourselves what I say the cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, Jesus, we who are many all around the world are one body for we all partake of one bread. It's powerful. And in Jesus, 30 seconds and just talk to him, do business with him, and then I'll come back up and we'll take it together. this first verse, it's going to mention that Jesus' body was broken for you. And as I read those words, I'd encourage you to just hold that bread up to your ear and break it and be reminded that it was his broken body that was broken for us, for you, for me, for our sin, that we could find life and find it to the full. So the Bible says this in First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, the Apostle Paul's writing To his friends in a church in Corinth, then he says this, For I received from the Lord, that's important, right? It's not his opinion. It's the Lord's. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And then here we enter the scene that we just studied. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread as you're holding in your hand. And when he had given thanks, which we've been doing all morning in song, he broke it, and I'd encourage you to do that. And He said these words, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Amen. Amen. The Bible says, In the same way, He also took the cup, after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood there would be no more paschal lambs you didn't bring a dove to church today i didn't slaughter any animals up front for you praise god i would struggle to be a pastor (laughs) but in fact jesus was that new covenant and he made a way for you to be right with god and it cost him his body and blood Praise God, He did not stay that way. Amen. Amen. He rose, giving us victory. But the Bible says this, quoting Jesus, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the Bible says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Amen?